0: I'm Sarah. And I'm Darby. And And we we love love the Odyssey. Odyssey. So these two
1: nerds are going to tell you about it. So grab your snacks and get ready to Odyssey and Chill. So here's what's going to happen. Each episode, we're going to summarize a section of the Odyssey, and then we're going to talk to a fancy person about it. If you don't need a summary, feel free to skip ahead. On this episode, we're going to summarize books
0: one through four, and our fancy person is Andromache Karanika, Associate Professor of Classics at UC
1: Irvine. Book one. The first challenge in this epic is finding the beginning. Well, the beginning begins at the end of the Battle of Troy. The Greeks won. Among them was our protagonist, Odysseus, who is going to take a really long time to get home.
0: One impediment is spending seven years with Calypso, a goddess who trapped him and wanted him for her husband.
1: The gods get together and have a little board meeting to decide if Odysseus gets to go home to Ithaca. Everybody says yes, but only because it was specifically scheduled by Athena to make sure her uncle Poseidon, the god who would say no, would be out of town.
0: By the way, Odysseus's biggest rival during this epic is the sea. Also known as Poseidon. FYI, the Greeks personify the forces of nature.
1: Here's something you need to know Ithaca, where Odysseus is from, is a mess because. One, his wife Penelope is in a
0: bit of a predicament. She's left alone holding the fort, but she can't actually rule because she's a woman and the patriarchy is alive and well. And her father is too old to step in and her son is too young. Second, there are suitors everywhere who have made themselves at home while waiting for Penelope to choose a second husband. Third, She, Penelope, is holding out the hope that Odysseus is alive because, if not, she has to marry one of these assholes.
1: Okay, back to the gods. Athena disguises herself as Mentes, a mortal, and goes to Telemachus, that's Penelope and Odysseus' son, to tell him that Odysseus will come home because the gods have said so, so he needs to go find daddy and she gives him a year to do it. She
0: tells Telemachus, if you hear daddy's dead, come back and have a proper funeral, kill the suitors, and send your mom off to find a new husband. And that takes us to the end of book one. Book Two Telemachus calls a meeting with the Ithacans and the suitors in which he asks the suitors to leave. The suitors refuse, and they tell us that they have been waiting for
1: three, maybe four years for Penelope to pick a suitor. Okay, story time. Penelope told the suitors that she needed to weave a shroud for her aging father-in-law to be buried in upon his death. And only after the shroud was completed, would she pick a new husband, but this took forever because she would weave every day and unweave at night with the help of her slaves. The suitors found out and forced one of the slaves to complete the shroud. They're not going anywhere until she picks a husband. Telemachus
0: tells Eurycleia,
1: his nurse slash
0: nanny, that he's leaving to find daddy and asks her to pack provisions and prep a ship for the trip. He tells her he's leaving at night while his mother Penelope is sleeping. And he tells Eurycleia not to tell his mom for 12 days after he has left, because she'll freak out and be sad, and crying will, quote, ruin her pretty skin. Wait, what? This isn't quite as bad as it sounds. In mourning rituals, ancient Greek women wouldn't just cry or wail, but they would also tear at the skin of their face and chest with their nails. There are lots of Greek vases which depict women at funerals with scratch marks on their face, symbolizing that they've torn their skin in grief. Okay, fine. At dawn, Telemachus sets sail with Athena by his side. Wait, does he know that's her? He suspects. He doesn't know, but he
1: doesn't not know. And that takes us to the end of Book 2. Book 3. So Telemachus arrives in Pylos, and he goes to Nestor, an elder king, and asks about Odysseus. Nestor replies, 1. He hopes that
0: Odysseus is alive, but has no certain knowledge of this. 2. He suggests that Telemachus go to Sparta and ask Menelaus for news about his father, just like Athena said would happen.
1: Wait, what? If she knows what happens, why didn't she just tell him to go straight to Menelaus?
0: Well, the gods may be powerful, but there are still rules. Odysseus's path has, at least in part, been preordained for him. There are hints of this throughout the Odyssey. So Athena can help and provide handy tips, but she can't actually fast forward through the
1: whole journey. Also, she has a rather cruel sense of humor, as you'll see. Telemachus spends the night in Pylos, and in the morning, he takes off with Pisistratus, Nestor's son, to find Menelaus. And that takes us to the end of Book 3. Book 4. Telemachus and Pisistratus arrive in
0: Sparta and find Menelaus hosting a feast. Menelaus invites them in. Helen, Menelaus' wife, yes, that Helen, the famous Helen of Troy, recognizes Telemachus because he resembles Odysseus, and everyone at the party starts to cry. Way to kill the mood. Helen then decides to pour some drugs into the wine, so anyone who drinks it will not cry for 24 hours. Okay, but it's important to note that she announces she's doing this. She's not secretly
1: roofing her party guests.
0: Then, Helen tells a story about when Odysseus disguised himself as a beggar and entered Troy to slaughter men and spy on the Trojans. Then, Menelaus reminisces about the Trojan horse story. At the end of the night, Telemachus goes to bed. At dawn, Menelaus goes to Telemachus and asks why he's in Sparta. Wait, what? Why is he asking now? The man spent the night. Actually, Menelaus is being a proper host. It was customary to treat any guest, even one unknown, unannounced, and unexpected, with extreme deference and respect, just in case that guest turned out to be a god in disguise. Traditional practice forbid a host from asking their guest questions until after the guest had bathed and feasted. Telemachus replies that he's searching for news about his father and tells Menelaus about the horrid situation in Ithaca. Menelaus is dismayed and tells Telemachus that the word on the street is that Odysseus is trapped on an island with the
1: goddess Calypso, and he has been crying about it for many years. So wait, he spends all day crying on a beach and then spends all night having sex with a goddess? Yeah, pretty much. Big mood.
0: Menelaus asks Telemachus to stay in Sparta for 11 or 12 more days, but he says, thanks but no thanks, because my crew is still waiting for me back in Pylos. Meanwhile, in Ithaca,
1: a dude named Noemon asks Antinous, who is the main suitor by the way, if Telemachus is returning home because he lent him his personal shit. Now, Antinous freaks out because the suitors did not know Telemachus was gone to Pylos, so he tells the rest of the suitors, and they all lose their shit, so they decide to ambush Telemachus and kill him when he returns home. A houseboy who happened to be eavesdropping tells Penelope that her son is gone and that the suitors are planning to kill him. She freaks out and, quote, grief wraps around her. Okay, back to the suitors downstairs. They have this big feast, and then they declare that Penelope is ready to marry again. And that takes us to the end of book four.
0: Today, we're sitting with Andromache Karanika, who is associate professor in the Department of Classics and has been a faculty member at UCI for the last 13 years. Her work focuses on gender in antiquity. She published Voices at Work, Women, Performance, and Labor in Ancient Greece in 2014
1: well hi hi (laughs) (laughs) thank you for being here well thank you the game begins (laughs) (laughs) oh dear okay well let's just jump right in what's your favorite translation of the odyssey that's a hard question. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: mean, I'm a professional Greek, I guess, <laughs> reading it always from from uh, from the original. But um, I do like Stanley Lombardo's translation quite a bit. Okay. I mean, that's the one I use for my undergraduates. So my criterion is what, you know, would be really good to the undergraduates. You know, it's a wonderful translation. It doesn't sound academies
0: he actually reads it in the audiobook himself, which tells you something about how he was potentially thinking about mm-hmm. it as a spoken text oh, when he yeah. did it. And yeah. and of course, the Odyssey was a spoken text in ancient Greece. So it is a nice thing to give the undergrads an impression of what it would have been like.
1: What's your favorite book in the Odyssey? <laughs> <laughs> Book six. Okay. I like book
2: six. I think uh, I think the Odyssey begins with book six. I mean, this is when Odysseus really is there. Interesting. Yeah. That was not the answer yeah. I expected. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's many people's sort of favorite book, but I think it's also the book that has most of the other um, genres of performance in there because we have women in there. So it's a unique opportunity for us to look into... Um, not just women's life but girls lives interesting uh, yeah.
1: you mentioned something earlier where you said this is where the story begins for you mm-hmm. this is where the odyssey begins for oh, you oh well,
2: the real odyssey yeah. we call it <laughs> the, <laughs> I real mean, the odyssey. adventures yeah
1: right. um Yeah, I think there was a question along those lines that we kind of wanted to ask you Mm -hmm. about it. Yeah, so each of the, the Iliad and the
0: Odyssey and the other poems that we know about carve out very specific sections of this much larger cycle of stories that were around. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are the sort of popular sections that have been carved out. The Odyssey especially is written, we come in in medias res, um, and we're in the middle of the story. We go back and forward in time. Why Why this section of story? Um, what was the sort of, what was like magical about it? Or what, what's interesting about this particular selection and how it fits into the overall and- cycle?
2: I mean, the Odyssey in a way starts with the absent Odysseus and it is important that it starts with the absent Odysseus because you, you, you cannot have a young hero grow up if the father is present. You have to kind of Get rid of your parents. That's everywhere in Greek mythology. <laughs> so that's yeah. the first section. And then we have Odysseus coming in. And again, Odysseus has to, uh, has to. I mean, I already said it, he has to be reborn. He has to come back to society. He's been away and he's been living practically in a cave with Calypso for seven years. So we have also, I mean, there's this, it's a new section. But also if you think of the timeline of the poetry, uh, the, mm. I mean, Homer is very creative about how he uses his time. So we have this completely inert time for Odysseus. I mean, nothing is happening for, say, seven years, and then he everything has to happen in the last year.
1: Right. And
2: that's when we have the uh, the real Odyssey, that you know his adventures. And it's very important that the adventures come from him, because precisely because it's part of him fashioning his own identity and fashioning his own identity after he has been as I said earlier a complete failure
0: yeah yeah and we get this comment in Homer that they the Phaeacians are going to supply him with more treasure than he would have had just coming home straight from Troy after Mm -hmm. doing the pillaging that he did so we get this sense of like almost an endowment on this new identity of Odysseus that's being furnished by mm-hmm. these host people.
2: I think the text is doing something really interesting there. in And I like how you formulate this question is precisely because all of the pillaging is overshadowed. Mm. So it's not part of the picture anymore. So what he comes, what he earns, so to speak, from the Phaeacians, you know, he has performed for them. So it's a kind of an anti-gift that he receives and quite a generous one. So there, is, there are all these, sad, you know, subtle messages in, in the poem. But I think the poet does not want all, all these, you know, endowments, <laughs> let's say, to come through pillaging. And even the Phaeacians, that also gets
1: lost on the way. I want to shift for a second and ask you a little bit about Penelope. Mm, um, thank you. <laughs> I uh, have. A, well, I think I'm not the only one to have a bit of a fascination with Penelope. Um, I'm really curious about the weaving of the shroud um, and why that responsibility falls on her for her father-in-law. Isn't there another female relationship who could do it? Or is it a daughter-in-law's job to weave a shroud for her father-in-law to be buried in? Well, it is the closest relative, so to speak.
2: Uh, And she is the one right there. Uh, I mean, there is no mother. She has died. There is no wife for Laertes. Uh, We actually do have a reference somewhere in Book 15 to a sister of Odysseus, a woman called Ktimeni, who is married off to a Foreign land or a faraway land, and so that kind of again is is an interesting reference that nobody talks about. <laughs> but she's not there, so Penelope is the one to uh, to do this. Okay. But then she takes the role. It's not something that is given to her. She takes the initiative to do to weave the shroud. Okay. And it's part of her ruse. And what I think people don't notice enough, she does not write a contract with the suitors. I mean, she doesn't promise that she will marry someone in the end. She just basically tells them look, do not press me while I'm doing this. And for her, it's very convenient that it is Laertes, because it is, in a way, Laertes is the male pillar of the house since her husband is not there. She has to protect herself and protect the land, but also the palace in which she is now the queen and right. the king at the same time. So using Laertes as her intermediate, so to speak, figure, and in particular, the, the shroud for Laertes, which is an object, is, is very I guess it would resonate a lot to the ancient audience. The weaving is a specifically
1: female task, is what I'm understanding. It is. I mean, in
2: the epic, in the the archaic epic world, it is... uh, a female task i mean historically it would not have been only a female task we have references to male weavers as well but the way it is presented in the in most of our literature it's, it's, it has become a female okay. task
1: so it would fall under a female yeah, to do yeah. this
2: in this world right okay and it has to be a shroud because it has to be a ritual object Interesting. It can't okay. just be anything. I mean, if you're do, if you're saying you're working on something, that something has to be something of importance. So the fact that it is a shroud for a funeral for the king or a former king, I mean, all these things are also woven together. Mm-hmm. And she takes authority from every single little thing, right? <laughs> from the fact that it is for her, for her father-in-law, from the fact that it is a ritual object.
1: Mm, okay, and. Uh, so the object itself has to have this importance. Is that why the suitors respect it, respect that wish? Because it is that specific object? Precisely, yeah. Okay. It is for, I mean, it is something
2: for a specific purpose okay. and something that would matter for the society. I mean, it is the death of a king after all.
1: Right. So which, if she said, I'm weaving some right. flower pot holders. <laughs> no, <we're laughs> That wouldn't change a thing. <laughs>
2: but it's also, okay. every, I mean, it's all her, I mean, she, uh, she's making it up in a way. So, I mean, she's doing it, but she's also uh, working with the suitors, you know, she's. Right, she's improving. Right, so she's okay. manipulating time. Mm. I mean, the, the whole weaving and unweaving scheme is about time and how Homer is uh, working with the sense of time from the female perspective.
1: Right, and how that takes a physical um Yes, and image. then it becomes unphysical. <laughs> right. When it dissolves. <laughs> when it's undone. Puzzling. So once they discover this was all a scheme, it was all fake. Right. To keep us at bay, but we're still going to force someone to complete it anyway. Um, why? Because the shroud... Um,
2: has this symbolic function, right? I mean, the shroud for someone who's not dead yet, while the husband of Penelope is away. So it has to do with the absence of the main hero and Penelope, in a way, kind of mirroring uh, her activity to that of the main heroes. So her weaving and unweaving are very much a kind of a parallel to Odysseus's travels. Mm. Yeah. So she has to finish because that's the way for the poem symbolically to tell the audience that, you know, uh, Odysseus has to return. If he were if he was not to return, the shroud would never finish. The
0: other question I'm I'm sort of wondering about that is is it parallel also in that we see she's using weaving which is under Athena's patronage as a strategy, which is also a thing that's under Athena's patronage. Are we supposed to wonder whether this is an Athena-inspired way of sort of stretching
2: out her time while Odysseus is waiting to come home? That's a, that's an excellent idea. I mean, Athena is very subtly present throughout the poem. I mean, uh, she is the one who instigates Nozika to go out. She appears in Nozika's dream in book 6 uh, and she's the one who makes the Odyssey in a way that uh, happen <laughs> and Odysseus's return happen. So she's present throughout. I mean and she does we know that she uh works very uh, closely with Odysseus. She, he, she's behind him throughout the poem. So she's not explicitly mentioned, but I think because Eventually, when Penelope and uh, Odysseus are united and she even beautifies them, <laughs> you know, she... She extends, uh, the, she, night she extends well the night as well Again, you see, it has to do with time. I mean, mm-hmm. these poems are obsessive about how you can use your time and how you can play with your time. I mean, that's what performers do in the end. Right. So okay. Athena is there. And I think the the fact that Penelope does all this weaving, it's her way to connect with Athena.
1: Yeah, shall we switch lanes to Helen a little bit? Yeah, so another female figure.
0: So so we see Helen um, in book four. Telemachus comes in and she seems to have managed to create this perfect domestic scene for herself. They're in this very hospitable hall. They have this excellent feast. She, in fact, pours potion into the wine so that everybody is happy rather than crying. So, like, tell us a little bit about Helen. She sees through disguises. She seems to have these enchantress-style powers. Well,
2: Helen is also a performer throughout. um, And she she's a performer who has studied from you know with the best so she's been to uh, she's been in egypt she uh, has got a lot of knowledge about mixing drugs so she is somehow i mean she's portrayed a little bit like a witch figure but witchcraft in in this world is actually knowledge I mean, it is. Um, she knows how to manipulate again the drugs, her time, and also her audiences. So she is the master performer there,
0: and and certainly she imitates the voices we hear of yeah, all of the f- other people. Yeah, um, that's a fun. Fa-
2: yeah, that's a, that's a it's a brilliant moment there because she is the epitome of what a performer should be. You have to be able to to get every single one of your audience.
1: Yeah, I mean, she becomes a sort of master bard in that moment. Right,
2: right. She is a master bard. And like uh, Penelope, she also weaves Right. And again, she manipulates time quite a bit because when she gives to Telemachus in Book 4 something that she herself wove, so it comes from her own hands, so it's a memory of her hands. I mean, the text is very clear of that. She um, gives it as a gift to Telemachus to intend it, I guess, for his future wife, but in the meantime, it has to be guarded by his mother, Penelope. So she comes closer to Penelope who's a kind of a blameless figure. She hasn't caused any war after all. (laughs) (laughs) So again, that if you think about her strategy rhetorically, I mean, she is a brilliant performer, how she uses something that she made to connect her to Penelope, even though she gives it to Telemachus. Right. And she connects her past with the present of Telemachus and Penelope, with Telemachus' future. So she will be present through what she made in the
1: future generations. Wow. So she knows how to make herself memorable. Absolutely. And she's this like, I guess she's epic so. yeah. manipulator. Yeah. And Penelope manipulates from the comfort of her own home, so to speak. And and a manipulator that is so good that
0: she's able to see through Odysseus's disguise when he shows up as a beggar sneaking into Troy and this is something that he's always in disguise. So this is a big deal that mm-hmm. she mm-hmm. has this power over him.
2: Right. And it is part of this competitive style of our heroes. She, in a way, wins over Odysseus by look- by seeing through his disguise, and that makes her superior.
1: Right. So here's this interesting, at least question I had about, about Helen. So we... We have this idea of who Helen is, you know, the face that launched a thousand ships and whatnot. And we get to see Helen in the Odyssey. And it sort of, I mean, she's amazing, but the first encounter with her was almost a little anticlimactic. Because I guess I imagine this, you know, godlike, impossible, epic beauty who did all you know who started this war and and here there's this picture of a of domesticity i think that is sort of presented to us and it feels almost a little anticlimactic when we first meet her in this book
2: why yeah the the odyssey does not read helen as a beauty i mean the iliad does quite a bit of it especially in a uh, book three where you know the uh Elderly men of Troy even say, okay, we're having this war, but we're having it for this woman. (laughs) Right. Right? And they kind of, I mean, her beauty is present, but not in the Odyssey. The Odyssey is more about knowledge, about survival. And if she is to compete with Odysseus, um, he's returning. So she has to have got to have got. And there first. So she has returned first before him. So there's a lot of hidden competitions behind there. So she is an anti-Odysseus. Okay. So is Penelope, of course.
1: Right. And why does Helen have to compete with Odysseus?
2: Is it because everybody has to compete with everybody around here? Well, it's, again, because she is a performer. And it is a way that Homer gives, you know, the female character also uh, the performer's task of
1: Competing like,
2: mm-hmm. and weaning their audience, and she she does that pretty well. And and we see too, right?
0: The other sort of enchantress woman that we have, Circe, also has this knowledge that she wields mm-hmm. and also competes with Odysseus, and she loses, whereas Helen wins. Um, right, right. right so- which is interesting because Helen is the mortal woman, and she is...
2: And
1: it, the goddess,
2: yeah. If you think about uh, Odysseus's encounters with um, many of the women, they all have to do
1: with knowledge. I think that's about all the questions that we had. Did you have anything else? No, I think that's good. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank that you was so... fun,
2: actually. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> well, <I didn't>
1: even... <laughs> Odyssey and Chill is made possible with the generous support of UCI Illuminations, with special thanks to Professor Julia Lepton without whom this project would not have happened, the associated graduate students of UCI, and Professor Vinnie Olivieri, who knows all the things and pointed us in the right direction.